Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, my favorite listeners in the world. Welcome to Drinking During Business Hours. I'm your host, Sarah J. And we're so grateful. You know, today marked 5,000 listeners, and we're so, so very grateful. We're on episode 11 today, and we've technically only been on the air for nine weeks. So that's really good. And we're just very, very flattered, my producer Jason and me. Thank you so very much for your support. And to celebrate, to celebrate, we are going to feature champagne in this episode. Champagne Lallier. And this particular champagne came from 2012 Harvest. It's brut, which means dry. It's from I in France. It's true, true champagne. It's small in production. And it's really kind of very similar to my guest today. It's understated and it's a big deal. It's one of those champagnes where it's like, yeah, Google me, bitch. <laughs> uh, today I'm so excited. I have Jeff Greenstein on uh, on the show today. And I don't know, maybe you've heard of him. He his credits, let me know if you've ever heard of these of these shows. His credits inc- include Will and Grace, Desperate Housewives, Parenthood, Partners, Friends. I don't know if you've ever heard of Friends. I don't know. I've heard of it and I think I think it's it's really this list of uh, this list of shows is really some of the best in television history, and I'm so very honored to introduce everyone to Jeff Greenstein. Thanks, Thank you, Sarah. I've never been compared Hi. to champagne before. <laughs> it's the best. It's fantastic. It's the best, and this particular champagne is understated and unpretentious. Wow. Okay. Well, I am stated and pretentious, so let's see how oh, it goes. I don't think so. I, and we just met. We well, just met right. about I don't know a week and a half ago that's or so, right. and we met through our mutual friend Kim Grunenfelder. Previous podcast guest. Be sure and download it. She is fantastic. Best-selling author. Yes. And I I met Kim through my social media and uh, she was a wonderful guest here on the show and we've become friends, really good friends and she had a dinner party. And now her nickname is going to be Ultimate Connector because... She is that. Because we met. That's right. <laughs> yes, that's right. And it was, such a, it was such a nice evening. Yeah, it was really good. And you brought alcohol, which I guess I, you do. You know, You're really good at that. That's what I do. Whatever you it's brought was I extraordinary. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. And it was a lovely... Uh, she prepared shrimp scampi. Yeah. And, um, and yes, I, I brought a, a, a Pinot Noir from Britain Vineyards. And it, it was, was great. It was good. Whatever you yeah. said about it sounded it's, just extraordinarily okay. <laughs> evocative and appropriate. Okay, honestly, the evening was a bit magical for me because in LA, I find that not a lot of people have intimate dinner parties with you know selected yes. guests where you know we just talked around the table for hours. Yeah, it was pretty great. I And it was interesting because uh, you were there and then uh, Kim's friend Fa was there and I'd yes. never met either one of you before. And it was one of those great, like rambling, far-reaching, intimate, sharing kind of yeah. conversations that goes everywhere, like the kind you used to have when you were a teenager, uh, or and in New was, York City too. Yeah, exactly. That kind oh, of yeah, reminded me of New York City. We talked about that a little bit. Never been, never That's, lived in New York. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but it was, it was a wonderful night, and I was so glad to meet you. And it was so kind of you to invite me and recite my credits so reverently. So oh. thanks for that. <laughs> well, they're really impressive uh, and a big deal. And we were kind of talking. Um, off mic about how you really have written some of the most extraordinary and fun roles for for female actors in particular. It's interesting you say that. I feel so lucky because I worked with so many gifted actresses. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that 
when you're working with actresses of the caliber of like, you know, Lisa Kudrow, Jennifer Aniston, uh, Deborah Messing, the best. Uh, you know, on Parenthood, Lauren Graham, and uh, I mean, just in, in cre- and everybody in Desperate Housewives. I mean, it, uh, let's see, did I leave about anybody else I liked? So many amazing <laughs> people. And so when you're working with instruments of that extraordinary caliber, you can really stretch and you can push comedy and drama and everything in between. Now, you're from Atlanta, Georgia. I am, as you can probably tell from my southern drawl. <laughs> you, absolutely, you have absolutely none, by the yeah, way. Yeah, well, that, it depends that... who I hang out with. I'm working on a show now where I'm working with a lot of people from the south, and the more the day goes and the longer it goes on, the more I start, you know, it just starts to happen. And it's but, so much fun. Yes, it is. It's, it's one it's of fun. my favorite dialects. It's very good. But <laughs> no, I've never really had that much of an accent, uh, even though I spent the first 16 years of my life in Atlanta. I think I made a conclusion at some point that unless you're like a test pilot like Chuck Yeager, you know, yeah. having a drawl kind of brands you as dopey. And it so can. I kind of talked myself out of it a little bit. And mm-hmm. then by the time I went to college in Boston, I had sort of mastered the art of sounding like I was from somewhere else. But yes, I did. I grew up in Atlanta <laughs> uh, in the 70s. I'm a Southern boy. My whole family is from there. My dad uh, was born in Brooklyn, New York, and grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, and then went oh. moved to Atlanta to go to Georgia Tech, and that's where he met my mom. Okay. And so, yeah, I'm a Southern boy, and I carry a lot of that around with me, I think, even though it may not be readily apparent. Now, what came first? Did writing come first with you as, as, in oh, terms no. of, okay, <laughs> uh, okay, I want to hear all about it. How- well, okay, um, gosh, where to begin? Well, you know, there's that line from the, uh, the Up documentaries, give me the child at seven and I will give you the man, you know, seven up, 14 up and so forth. Yes, yes. So at seven, apparently if you asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would say I want to be a freelance writer. That was what I said in my little piping seven-year-old voice. That's a a big statement from a seven-year-old. Yeah, I'm not even sure I knew what that meant, except (laughs) that it had a lot of syllables in it. And I maybe had read somewhere that that was a cool thing to do. But, um, uh, you know, I grew up in a family that loved books and loved writing Mm -hmm. and loved comedy. And so at seven, I guess I thought maybe, but then the, the next like 10 years were all about science and math. Um, I saw my first computer when I was nine, and Mm. I was very interested in astronomy and physics and uh, software design, and I happened to go to a high school that had a mainframe computer, and so I was really into being a programmer. Wow. Um, all through my teens and even in, even well into college, that that's what I wanted to do. If I hadn't taken an Italian cinema class in college, it's it, I wow. very easily could have gone that way. I very easily could see myself being a mathematician or working in the sciences or working as a programmer, totally, totally. I'm always fascinated that just one small move can completely shift the trajectory of your life. Well, that's what happened. I mean, I took this class as a lark, you know? Uh I was like, I don't want to be a total nerd. I don't want to spend all my time with nerds. I was always... This again, pretentious. I always thought it was important to be well-rounded and to know a little bit about a lot of things. Yeah. And so um, first semester in college, even though I was in the College of Engineering at Tufts University, first semester I took a class on Beethoven. I didn't know anything about classical music. It's like I just opened the course catalog and like, well, why not this? And second semester, Italian cinema. I don't know if I'd ever seen a subtitled movie, but I was like, well, okay. And that changed my life. I started mm-hmm. writing. I showed it to friends. Mm-hmm. I developed this 
idiosyncratic style of my own. Mm-hmm. I was really fortunate that after a few years, I actually got staffed somewhere. I don't know how I just blundered into that. So, um, so how did that happen? Because well, I'm really curious. Well, um, I lured my college friend Jeff Strauss out here after about six months after I moved here, okay. and so he and I started writing together. And, and you're young at this point because you're very, pretty fresh. I was 20. Oh, really? Yeah, because I, I okay. was I was pretty. I was I started kindergarten. Uh, I skipped kindergarten. I started okay. first grade at four. Because I was, I should have known a, the glasses. Such a large smarty, um, <laughs> but uh, I. Um, uh, so I was twenty when I graduated and moved out here, and um, uh, Jeff and I started writing together, and we were working on screenplays and such. And I, um, my girlfriend, who I met out here, was working as a placement agent at a temp agency. So mm-hmm. she got Strauss a job in uh, at ABC. And wow. eventually, after there was a reshuffle, he ended up on the desk of the head of comedy development. My. And so we were toiling away on our endless screenplays. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, these scripts were going across his desk for like Moonlighting and Roseanne and, okay. and um, Wonder Years and 30 we, something. And we're like, God, these them. are amazing shows. <laughs> Fantastic. Maybe, iconic, actually. Yeah, iconic today. shows. Yeah. And we were reading these and loving them and loving them. And we we're like, maybe TV is what we should be doing. So we shifted our focus. From features to TV. I mean, primarily because the scripts were shorter. Okay. And there seemed like there would be more opportunities. Mm -hmm. And also, Jeff was developing these phone relationships with lots of agents. And so when we had a piece of material that we thought was good enough, we asked one of them if he would read us. And eventually, he Mm -hmm. took us on. And after a few years of freelancing as, you know, writing episodic television, Mm -hmm. shows of no, I mean, you read all my groovy credits. I wrote an episode of Charles in Charge, Mr. Belvedere. Oh. Uh, I'm sure there's something else in there. The Charmings. Okay. I mean, yeah. freelance episodes of, you know, really right straight down the middle sitcoms. And then we got staffed on Dream On, which was one of HBO's first series, um, which was created by Marta Kaufman and David Crane. And we okay. went from being baby writers to running that show. Whoa. And I learned Very fortunate. everything. So fortunate. Because you're still really young at this point. So, yeah, and I, I think and at you that just... point, let's see, 89. So I was I was 25 or 26 when I got that job. And uh, uh, I was just really lucky. And I stayed there a long time and uh, learned an enormous amount from, mm-hmm. a, from not just from Marta and David, but there were incredible writers on that staff. I mean, Bill Prady, who went on to create Big Bang Theories on that staff, Max Muchnick and wow. David Cohan, who created Will and Grace, they were on that staff. That's got to be pretty neat to it see would, everyone just kind of crescendo. And they did. And, you know, to, to kind of all start at the same time and just yeah. to see where everyone goes and yeah. and, and to create uh, something um, iconic together that will be your baby and family. Yeah, and it, it was just, it was amazing because we were all young writers. Very few of the people I mentioned had any credits before they got staffed on Dream On. Marta and so David had cool. great taste in writers. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of our tenure on Dream On, they asked us to help out on a pilot they were writing, which at the time was called Six of One. And that became Friends. And so they took us with them to that show. Mm. And I'd never written a multi-camera half hour before because, okay. you know, Dream On was single camera. And mm-hmm. so had to learn that discipline on the fly. And and was there a vast difference between the two? Yeah. Well, Friends was an extremely challenging show. I mean, it may not be apparent to the end viewer, but to do a show with six leads and three parallel stories in every episode yeah. operating in the same timeline and in a lot of cases in the same physical space is really, really challenging. I always thought that every episode was a you know, a finely designed Swiss watch. And 
chances are that one of the watch parts would not be working over the course of a typical production week. And so you would have to say, okay, well, we can lift out this tiny gear and we can remachine it and maybe put in a different one. And so it was just a very complicated and intricate mm. show. There were mm -hmm. a lot of late rewrites on the show. Oh, I would imagine. Um, and was it, it stressful? It was, it was only stressful in that multi-camera is always stressful because you have to rewrite an entire script in a night, every night. So if you don't mind, kind of um, explain multi-cam oh, sure. versus for our listeners that well, may not know. Typically, when we say multi-camera, we're talking about shows that are filmed before a live audience mm -hmm. and uh, usually with a what we call a laugh track, though what that is is the sound of the live audience laughing at incredibly good jokes. Right. Um, but it is staged, the laughter? Yes. Okay. And it's And it's really basically a filmed stage play. Okay. Um, so that when we talk about multicam, we're talking about a show like Friends or like Cheers or like mm -hmm. Family Ties mm -hmm. or like I Love Lucy right. or like How I Met Your Mother. Yes. Um, and then when we talk about single cam, we're talking about like The Wonder Years or 30-something mm -hmm. or Parks and Rec or The Office, you know, shows that are shot so more like a movie. So just different challenges between the two stylistically. Yes. Yeah, they're different challenges stylistically. Yeah, well put. And then beyond that, there are different challenges just in terms of the way that the production week unfolds. Mm -hmm. Because with multicam, you typically read the script and rehearse the script. And then ever after every reading and rehearsal, you rewrite the whole thing. Oh, and so work. it's a workshopping process that begins on the day of the table read and ends the night you shoot it and continues. You've been to filming of a multicam. Yes. So you know that you're rewriting even during the shoot. It, which looks so stressful yeah, to me. Well, yeah, it's incredibly <laughs> stressful, but exciting. Yeah, it is exciting, yeah. but you know, you, see, you can see the beads of sweat and there's Definitely. just, you know. It's like, think up a joke right now. Yeah. No, or, and, then, know, the and then memorizing on the fly for the actor as well. I, I don't know how you they know, do it. You know, that's, it, it's a lot of turmeric. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, Not that I've been at that level, but I've been where I've had to, you know, other shows where I've had yeah, last minute rewrites. It's yes. crazy. So there's that. Mm -hmm. And then over on the single cam side, and I did that on, you know, uh, Dream On, a couple other shows that I've done were single cam or half hours. Um you're really crafting the script in advance of production. And once it's in production, it's kind of done. And it moves forward as, you know, it's off shooting somewhere while you're back with the writing staff. Okay. And so the challenges of that is, well, it's twofold. One is it's extremely hard to make single camera half hours funny. Oh. It's just really hard. Because you can have the sort of zany, dadaist, anarchic style of a show like um, 30 Rock. Right. Um, where it's there's a slightly kind of, you know, anarchic quality to it. Or you can write kind of comedy of embarrassment, like The Office. Okay. But what you can't really do is pump the show full of punchlines because mm. it tends to feel strange and forced. Ah. One of the things that I think is brilliant about Modern Family is that they do find a way to take a show that is single camera and make it as stuffed with laughs as your typical multi-camera half hour. And that's probably because most of the writers who work on that show come from multi-cam. Okay. Uh, but they do a very good job of almost like hybridizing the two styles. Okay. But the disadvantage of single camera is you don't get that workshopping process. And so you can't mm. really refine jokes over time. And you don't have the audience feedback to tell you whether it's really funny. If it works. It's really what 10 people in a room think is funny. It's there are essential. two things you can plunge, two areas you can plunder uh, in attempting to create comedic experiences for your character. One is things you sneakily learn about the actors, mm. which is always good. Like, 
there were a lot of stories about like, you know, Deborah Messing at Jewish summer camp that we would kind of <laughs> sneak into the show. Okay. Uh, and the other is your own Brilliant. experience, you know, right. and you have, um, you have to live. Yeah. And I had never, about, yeah. Right. And it's not, it's sometimes, I mean, sometimes you're pushing at the edges of your own experience. You know, I, I wrote the episode where Will comes out to grace. Mm. Um, uh, it's 1985. They've been dating for like six weeks. It really is getting to the point where if they were a regular couple, they would have slept together. But Will knows in his heart that it's something he really should tell her, but he's never said it out loud before. I've never had that experience. Okay. Yeah. So in writing that, I talked to a lot of friends who had, uh, the men who had had to tell their girlfriends and the women who had been told. But I also had to find within myself, like what experiences have I had? that are that loaded, that are that emotionally fraught, where mm -hmm. I have to tell a truth about myself and I'm scared out of my mind. Mm. Um, and it's in an environment where I'm really worried about hurting someone that I love desperately. Um, so it's like I had to reach for those experiences. I was always looking for those areas of commonality, even if it wasn't literally an experience I had had. Um, some, so like I said, sometimes you are writing directly from things that have happened to you and sometimes you are looking for, okay, when have I had something like that? When have I had to, you know, break bad news to a friend or when mm -hmm. have I had to defy a parent or when have I had to, uh, you know, atone for a shameful thing I've done? You know, those are all things that, you know, we find different ways to access. So, right. you know, yes, it must be true, but of course the truth can be authentic emotional truth. It doesn't have to be something mm -hmm. that actually happened to you. Right, right. Um, you can find something, you can find a correlation, like you said, that uh, that brings you uh, to that feeling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, when when Strauss and I started out writing, you know, spec scripts in an attempt to get hired, we wrote, the first couple of scripts we wrote, I always thought of as like erector sets. I mean, they were elaborate contrivances of ideas that were designed yeah. to you laughed, you know, mm -hmm. like we knew that if we created certain comedic situations and then lit the fuse, you know, sparks would fly. And it wasn't until we wrote a script that was sort of based on our own experience, which is we were kind of on the, let's see, we were getting into our late twenties and things had not quite gone the way we wanted them to. And we were feeling like, are we over? Even though. Oh, this is so and, funny. Yeah. And we, I know. Isn't that funny? <laughs> and we wrote a script. We wrote a spec episode of Murphy Brown, which was about oh, the young producer. Brown. Yeah. Remember that show? Sure we wrote do. an episode, which was about Miles Silverberg, who was sort of the 20 something hotshot producer on that show, uh -huh. having a crisis because he's turning 30 and he goes to Murphy and looks for sympathy. That's a really funny. <laughs> that is. You know, he's saying and like, am I losing it? Am I too? over? And he's talking to a 47-year-old oh, yeah. woman. Yeah, yeah. So we were writing something that wasn't literally our own experience, but it was born of our own experience, and it was no surprise that that was the best script we had written and the one that got us hired because we were suddenly imbuing uh, our writing with something that had emotional authenticity, even as it was funny. Um, you know, it's, it isn't necessarily write what you know, but it is write what you understand. Write what you understand that yeah. everyone would be able to relate. Yeah, and so that was a, you know, I, and, and it's so funny, you know, Sarah, when we wrote that, I was like embarrassed to be doing something that was so directly drawn. Like it was like I was it's cheating. You know, and of course, we all like, know if I had ever taken into that level of vulnerability. Yeah, it felt. Yeah, exactly that. It's so it felt, personal. Yeah, it's so personal. So and, to like, and there's a fear. There's a level of fear of just well, you, you know must experience that all the time. I do. It's like it's like uh, you know putting your heart out on the table. 
Yeah. And like having everybody look at it. It's interesting. I'm on a show right now where we are all, we've only been working together for a couple of weeks and we're all kind of learning how to be vulnerable together. Now, how does that, how do those dynamics play out? I mean, because I would imagine at times you're assigned to a project where you don't have a relationship or a rapport with the other writers. Oh, it's almost always that way. Wow. And you're in a room with them and you have to make magic happen. Yeah. Well, it's, there's an, to me, I mean, look, in some cases I've, there's one writer in the room that I've either met or worked with before. But, uh, when I walked into Mm -hmm. the room, like when I walked into the room on friends, I knew Marty and David, but I didn't know the other 10 people in the room. And when I went on Will and Grace, so about I had twelve writers. Yeah, about twelve writers. Not in this, not on the show I'm doing now, but okay, on a sitcom. But for, okay. Most of the sitcoms I've done have had staffs of between eight and fourteen. Um, Will and Grace. I had met Max and David. Uh, I knew Jimmy Burroughs, who was the director. But again, a room full of people I did not know. Now, is it, is it already staffed? Do you already know um, with whom is going to play these particular characters that you're writing? Oh, you mean when you join a writing staff, do yes. you know who's the, who the cast is? Yes. Sometimes. On okay. the show that I'm doing now, we don't. See, that would be an extra challenge as well. No? It is. It is. Because uh, or, trying to get a consensus on how these people talk yes. is tough. I mean, we have a pilot script, mm-hmm. okay? But it's not cast. And if Laura Dern plays the lead, it's going to be a very different show than if Holly Hunter plays the lead sure. or if uh, right. you know, or if Jennifer Garner plays the lead. Right, um, right. Uh, all very skilled actresses, but very but different, very different in tonality, mm-hmm. and they could each play that character. But mm-hmm. it's going to be different, and, we, and so coming to a consensus about okay, who is this woman? How does she talk? Mm-hmm. Is part of the game. But to your other point, there isn't a sort of tacit agreement when you enter a writer's room that we're all going to be hearing each other's virginity story by the end of the year. I mean, it's just that sort of, that's how it You're, goes. You gotta get naked together, you right? You really do. And and that that it's a safe space where you can try stuff. It's like a good improv troupe, okay? Yeah. And there's no censure for failing. And that, um, now that's when it works. I have worked with people that are horribly censorious. And uh, I've worked with people who shame you for pitching something bad. And, and, and I wondered, like, what happens when it's not all, you know, um, roses in the room? It's less what fun. Ha- it's less fun. But by and large, you know, especially the shows that I've been on for a long time, mm-hmm. um, those have been good and functional experiences. But there's, like I said, there's this tacit agreement of like, okay, we're all married now and we're going to be sharing a lot of stuff and it doesn't get repeated outside of this room and you never make somebody feel bad for having shared something. If you shame them for a personal experience that they've shared or for a bad pitch, they're going to clam up and you're not going to get good work out of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that, that agreement sense. has to, that so that has to work. And then it is also the business of like, okay, how does this band play together? We're going to jam, but like, yeah. you know, I thought I was good on bass, but I picked up a guitar and suddenly I'm your lead guitarist. This happens all the time. Ah. So room chemistry, I mean, I remember the first time, like Dream On, my first job, there was a writer in the room who, was, who I, when I had met him was incredibly quiet. And I was like, well, maybe he's the story guy. And his mm. partner was extremely vocal. And I thought, well, all right, well, maybe she's the funny one and he's just like a story engine or something. And it turned out when we got in the room, their polarities flipped, that he was the funniest guy in the room. Like once he felt safe, he was completely right. hilarious. Like one of the, he's, he's one of the, still one of the funniest people I know, one of the most 
extraordinary joke writers just in terms of ability to craft a punchline I've ever met. Um, so it just was about feeling safe and feeling like uh, he was in a space where he yeah, could create. Yeah, where he so, could, yeah, really. Yeah, so that happens sometimes. Get honest and and, uh, and vulnerable. And I, coincidentally, some of the most introverted people I know are the funniest. Yeah, definitely. Well, because it's unnatural to be, I don't know, I consider myself desperately introverted. And so, like, the adventure of my career has been mimicking the traits of an extrovert uh, because I, I feel like there's no possible way that I could uh, uh, function if I didn't. I feel that way too. Yeah. This is all fake. I'm very introverted. And, yeah. Well, let me ask you this. <laughs> I have agoraphobia. Oh, okay. Let me ask you a question. Okay. So, so when people buy, like you've created this thing that you operate in, this like I'm this working on lovely it. shell that you walk around <laughs> in that interfaces right. with the world. That's at least how I think of it. It's okay. like I have built this beautiful this machine shell, right. that it's I am a strange, twisted creature who lives inside it, but nobody has to know that. Six foot seven, kind six of foot seven, larger kind, than life, exactly. graceful. Thank so, you, yes. yes. But but the, no, the nobody knows that I'm still the strange little child, right? And so I move through space with a certain kind, especially, you know, as a director, I have to, to like be even you, more. Yeah, you have to take charge. Right. Absolutely. Right. You're and in so control. When people buy it, and most of the time they do, because I've worked a lot on this machine, when people buy it, part of me goes, yes. Yes, I pulled it off. It's working. <laughs> they bought it. <laughs> right. And part of me goes, suckers. Do you ever feel that way? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, that's interesting. I mean, probably. Okay. Probably. I mean, I mean, it, it, it depends on the situation, and okay. definitely in my past life, as as I used to be, um, I in the corporate world, yeah. and I was in the champagne industry, right? Uh, in a higher position, and yeah. I and I remember, you know, pr presentations at the distributor and traveling a lot, and just kind of, I just didn't really know a lot about. I was kind of launched and catapulted in this in this position, and I didn't really know a lot right. about champagne and wine and I just memorized some adjectives and yeah. you know I kind of faked it in the beginning right. so yeah and I mean, eventually it was acting and, they bought it. and eventually, eventually they, they bought, bought it. it and then eventually I bought it that's interesting then I became it interesting I think when you do it long enough yeah and you know and and when you just kind of reassure yourself and yeah and yeah I mean if you study enough to be able to talk intelligently about something yeah then you just know about it yeah because you studied it it's true and I, then when I moved into directing um I, I, I took all my actor friends and director friends to lunch and I was like do's and don'ts do's and don'ts and one of my uh, director friends said to me do you want to know the secret of of, of of being a director and I said what he said say you're a director oh. that's it all you have to do is say you're the director and then once you start saying that convincingly people will believe it that's it what was your pivotal moment mm, what do you mean in terms of yeah I am this Mac Daddy King Oh, that's never happened. Really? What do you mean? Like, I'm you're a Mac Daddy King. That's good. Until you, well, first of all, until you said but, that, no one had ever called me one of those. Well, maybe not in those I, words, but that's. I'm not being disingenuous a, when I say this, and I'm not fishing when I say this. I still believe I have a lot of work to do. You and know. And this is a lovely resume that you reeled off, but I always. I am definitely proud of my accomplishments, mm -hmm. and I am fiercely protective of my sterling IMDb page, okay? So that is really important to me. 
But at the same time, I don't ever feel that I've got it completely wired. I don't ever feel that I've learned everything there is to learn. And I am always looking for experiences that don't repeat what I've done in the past. I mean, I get pitched all the time. Do you want to do another show about six singles in New York City? Or do you want to do the Gay Best Friend show? Do you want to do the reboot of Will and Grace? Do you want to do, uh, you know, um, you know, Housewives in Suburbia? It's like, why would I want to do that? I already you did, did it. it. I did and it already. I did on such a high note. That's the thing. I did a really good version of yeah. that. Why would I want to go back? No disrespect to the lovely people who are doing right, Will and Grace. Right. I wish them every happiness. Yes. But I could never go back and revisit. Okay. Unless I had a whole new story to tell that was like, I don't know what a good example is. Like when they did, um, what was the sequel to Last Picture Show? Um, I don't remember what it was. Mm, but they went back and they sure. revisited those same characters 20 years later. Okay. And that's that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But Unless because they're different characters yeah. post 20 years. Yeah. I mean, unless yeah. you really wanted to, or Godfather right. 2. Okay, well, oh, I want yeah. to see what happened to him. Like, sure. unless I had something like that. Right. But to go back and try and repeat the experience, or God forbid, like, re repeat the experiences, like, well, what if it's a, a lesbian and her hot male friend and it's Will and Grace? Oh, God. It's like, well, I would just yeah. never, I, like, why would I want to do that? Right. It's like, I already did that show. Yeah, I respect that. So I'm, it's why I've kind of careened between single camera and multi camera, between comedy and drama, between cable and broadcast, between, mm -hmm. you know, uh, writing and directing. It's because, like, I just, I don't ever want to, like, repeat myself and it's just to go back to what you said at the outset it's because i do not believe i am the mac daddy king well you're humble and i i can't and and maybe we just never feel when we get to that level we don't feel it for ourselves and we are and also having that that continuous curiosity yes of of wanting to learn more and achieve more and get to you know certain areas of life and so yeah i mean i'm i'm and not looking back yeah it's like well i can't i, I mean there's something kind of, to me, a little sad about continuing to dine out on your credits from 10 years ago. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's great. I, I mean, I'm so grateful for those experiences. Right. But I, I would like to believe that I still have plenty of good and interesting work to do. The key is to, to maintain that expertise and take the knowledge you have, but carry it forward in a way that you remain open to new experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm so, like... The, you know, what, one of the reasons, I mean, I left Desperate Housewives for Parenthood because I wanted to work on a pure drama. I was like, what would that be like? Now, as it turned out, not for me. <laughs> I was going to ask, not you know, me. if you prefer comedy, that would that's on the, well, the agenda was, of questions plenty, here. Yeah, well, there was plenty of drama in Desperate Housewives. Oh, and I liked yes. writing the And drama. behind the scenes, too. Yeah, I well, there was help. definitely <laughs> that, too. But I, I liked writing the dramatic scenes, and, but... Mm -hmm. I, but you know, and I liked writing, I mean, I loved writing about religion on that show. I'd never done that before. I like writing about characters of faith, because I don't have any. So I found it very interesting mm -hmm. to write about people who do. Um, so you had to explore and kind yeah, of study and exactly. to be able to write again, intelligently like, and what accurately. Would it be like to feel that way? Mm -hmm. Like, what if, I mean, I've, I would think about this all the time when writing like Marsha Cross's character. Like, what would it be like to write? I mean, what would it be like to move through life feeling that God has a plan for you? Mm. It just is totally different. Way, way of, of living. thinking than the way that I think, right. which is that there is no plan and life mm -hmm. is chaotic. Right. Um, so 
Uh, anyway, I liked writing the drama on that show plenty. It was great. But then that was what made me think, well, what would it be like to work on a show like Friday Night Lights or Parenthood where it's just a purely dramatic show and comedy maybe leaks in at the edges, but what mm. it really is is a, an honest, earnest look at the human experience. And I loved my year on Parenthood, but I realized during that year um, that is not really my worldview. Mm. Um I have to have my banter. You have to have your banter. So what are you uh, working on now? You told me, but I am working on a new series. Uh, God, I wonder. Well, I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, It's a new series uh, for AMC Mm -hmm. um, called Aim High. And it is a drama with comedic gestures Mm -hmm. is what I would say um, about women and guns and the South which are two things that I'm interested in. <laughs> Guns is something Sounds that I have to learn about. For women. Well, it's an interesting story about um, the role guns play in our culture. And obviously this is a, we're having yet another national conversation about right. guns in the wake right. of the terrible tragedy well, in Las we, Vegas. We have to, you know. We yeah, and we're going to keep having those conversations right. because the chances are nothing is going to change. It and I am learning like about why things don't change. Um but uh, trying to write about it, trying to write about it from the standpoint of uh, characters who are deeply invested in um, the gun industry is fascinating. Um, and so I'm working on that show and mm-hmm. uh, we're writing some scripts. And if all goes well, this will be coming to your screen probably late next year. Oh, exciting. And it's a wonderful writing staff. I mean, just people. I've only been on the show like less than a month. Love these people oh, so that's so much. nice. Yeah, really, really good group. That's so nice. And honestly, Sarah, this is my first staff job since Desperate Housewives. I haven't been on a... I mean, I'm going to... If it goes, I get to direct a couple. But um, I have not been on a staff since Desperate Housewives because most of the last five years I've spent um, directing. I oh, directed, okay. uh, you know, a, something like a dozen episodes of Mom... I did some of the odd fantastic, couple. Fantastic, fantastic. And I did uh, I did several episodes of Desperate Housewives. I did a new CBS show called Nine JKL. Um, you know, so I've been doing a lot of directing, which is such a I, fruitful career. It's by been the great. Way. You oh, really, I'm lucky. I mean, you are so busy. I'm really lucky. Well, you're lucky. I have a feeling that you're a joy to work with. Oh, and thanks for saying that. You're that. stimulating and I, you're bringing a lot of talent to the to the I, room. Well, and, thanks. I mean, I I like to have a good time, and I have enormous respect. Particular, I mean, I have enormous respect for fellow writers. I have enormous respect for the amazing crews that bring these things into being, and I just love actors. I love them. You have multiple Emmy nominations. You have an Emmy, correct? I do. You do. Thank you for saying that. Explain that moment when you oh won the God. Emmy. You know, I mean, no one has you... ever asked me that. Um, well, cool. Uh, that was the okay. That was the. I had been nominated once before. Uh, as a writer of a Friends episode. Okay. And that was pretty unbelievable. I mean, just, well, the entire Friends experience was like being oh, it had to strapped be. to a rocket I mean, ship. We just had no idea th- that this that little thing. Off. <laughs> not that Not only that it would become- like a dream by, cast. By the summer after season one, it was the number one show on television. Dream, the fact that the 20 years later, I know we just had no idea. Uh, and I'm not even being cute about it. We uh, did not know that our show would become- Huge. This, Huge show that people still love a generation oh, later. Yeah. Amazing. Anyway, so I had Timeless. been nominated once before, and that was extraordinary just to be in the company of, mm. of writers of that caliber. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so whatever it was, years later, it was like whatever, three or four years later, Will & Grace was nominated for series uh, in season two. And I think, 
I don't remember whether I was nominated for a script that year. I don't think I was. So we were nominated for Best Comedy Series, but it was like, we're not going to win. We're not going to win. It was like, I think it was our first time being nominated. It was a relatively new show. I felt that it was Everybody Loves Raymond's year. Um, okay. Because it was, if it wasn't going to be Raymond, being, it was going to be Frasier. And right. if it wasn't Frasier, it was going to be, I think, Sex in the City. It was like, mm -hmm. there were a lot of great shows Huge. on the air. Right. And I was like, we're brand new. Um I mean, to be straight up honest, I did not know whether the Academy would get on board with a gay show, mm. um, you know, a show with no straight males in the cast. Okay. Um, this was edgy. Yeah. Well, no day. straight males in the cast of characters. Right. Right. <laughs> um, to be more accurate. Um, but. Uh, Which they uh, play so well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was it was an amazing thing just to be in that company, you know, just to get mm. to go to the ceremony. But none of us thought. We was going. None of us thought the show was going to win, uh, even though Sean and Megan early that evening both won. Um, we were still like, it's going to be Raymond. I mean, Raymond wow. had an amazing year, and um, and Friends was also nominated. Oh, and I was like, oh, and, it, and by the way, you know, whammy. Friends did not win until like season nine or something. So I was like, like praying for Friends to win. Like if it's not going to be it's us, so exciting, least, you know. So yeah. it was like to be in that elite company was incredible. But it was an interesting evening. This was. Um, God, when was this? 95, I think. Okay. So not everyone carried around a cell phone in 1995. Um, and I remember I was getting dressed to go to the ceremony and I put on my tux and it was like, you know, and my um, my wife said, well, should we bring a phone? Like in case something cool happens? I was like, no. So we didn't, so, <laughs> like, you know, if something, if something cool happens. It's going to be Raymond. So yeah, it's like, and then I remember as I was sitting down uh, in my seat and our seats weren't that good. So I was like, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Um, you didn't get VIP exactly. seats. Like, yeah, it's like they, were, they were all right, but it was like I friends saw, and like, Will and Grace way ahead of us. Were, but anyway, as I sat down in in, in my seat, uh, I broke a cufflink, and oh. so my sleeve was flapping around, and I was like, "Well, who cares? It doesn't it's, matter." I'm, like, I'm, I'm not. Be on stage. <laughs> and then, um, like I said, Sean and Megan won. That was amazing, and we're like, "You oh, must okay. have felt so great when they yes. won. Like that has to feel yes, very rewarding to be I responsible love, for their." Yeah, it was great, yes, and they thanked us all, and that and, was terrific. Mm -hmm. And and I think, um, you know, so the, the evening wore on, and it got to the end of the night, and Bruce Willis came out to present Best Comedy Series, and I said to the staff, "I said, no matter what happens, guys, remember we don't do this for the awards." Mm. And um, uh, and then they said. Will and Grace. <laughs> and we all just started screaming. And you're like, my cufflink. <laughs> I was like, I was trying to hold my sleeve together. We all just started screaming. Oh, and, um, uh, oh how joyous. We just jumped up and down and screamed in each other's faces. Oh. And the music was playing. And I, I did remember to kiss my wife because the, That's the, important. I had, good, I had good. <laughs> the last time I won an award, which was a Cable Lace Award many, many years before for writing, I forgot to do so. Uh -oh. And so I didn't want to mess it up. <laughs> um, but uh, so, you know, so I did. Then we all went to the stage, all of us. Like, you're only supposed to take like two producers, but we all went up to the stage and the whole cast came. And then, like, any, it was just, and then we were all up um. there. And then Max gave a fantastic speech. You know, he held up the uh, statuette and he said, I finally found a woman I want to sleep with, which is brilliant. That is brilliant. brilliant. And, uh, and it was incredible. That, it was that incredible. Had, that couldn't have been off the cuff, or do you think it was? I'm sure he knew he was going to say it. I'm <laughs> he sure he knew he was going to say it. in the mirror. It. Yeah, but he and David were very gracious, That's and neat. Um, yeah. I couldn't hear a word they were saying. You were just kind of. I was standing directly dots. behind. I saw, yeah. It's so funny you're mentioning this, Sarah, because I had this on my 
like I have this on a VHS somewhere, but I realized Aww. the other day somebody sent me a link of uh, the YouTube video of us winning. So I watched it just like a couple of weeks ago. And you can see none of us can hear anything that anyone else is saying. Just I am at up each on stage other. and here's what I'm doing. Well, this won't play on a podcast, but I'm just looking around like absolutely thunderstruck. Like I can't <laughs> believe where I am. Oh. I'm looking out at the crowd and I'm like, I don't can't believe how I got here. How did this happen? Because and that's just as rewarding for the audience to witness it too. It was great. You know, we it just all, feels so warm you know, and fuzzy. You know, I, I probably would have cried for you if it I was incredible. You know. And and a couple of cool things happened on the night. I mean, that was amazing. Um, the West Wing, I think, won for series, and okay. that was great. So they came in right after us. The whole like cast and crew of the West Wing came backstage at the same uh. time. Gary Shandling like congratulated us, and he said something like, "It's the only thing my friends are talking about," which was a typical <laughs> like oh, that's, not yeah. quite a compliment <laughs> from Gary Shandling. Maybe. Like clearly he didn't watch it. Um, oh, that's but, funny. But um, I remember as we were climbing the stairs. Um, uh, David Cohan said something really amazing to me that I've never forgotten. Mm -hmm. I don't want this to sound immodest, but he said to me, there's nowhere we're here if it isn't for you. Oh. And I was like, oh my God, that's, no, that's like, and I've never forgotten that. And, you know, I've had, what I've had some tough times with those guys over moment. the years, but it, they were always tremendously supportive of me. I had been mm. dumped by my writing partner 18 months before. So Will and so Grace was, yeah. So to, to kind of. Heavy to overcome. Yeah. To sort of pick myself up off the canvas and like. And that's like, just like a life partner. Like yeah. you're ready. That had to be like an intimate oh, yeah. relationship. We, you know, like in terms of, I mean, you're in the room, you're. Totally. You're, oh no, I he mean, was my work husband. I mean, yeah, we did a whole show yeah, called Partners yeah. about how like we were like a married couple. Oh. So, um, so to just rebound from that and pull myself together and like you know, uh, go to work on this brand new show and help like help be part of the making of like another must see comedy hit mm. and then to win an award. And, uh, and the is, ultimate, it was amazing. Award. And, yeah. and, you know, to get actually. that kind of acknowledgement for mm -hmm. that kind of show was incredible. And I, I don't mean to be Dr. Come down, but it was ultimately a little bad for the show. We had a rough mm -hmm. year the following year. Well, you know, they say that it's hard to live up to when you yeah. when you're the winner and there's a lot more pressure. Yeah. Well, then there was not for, only was there a lot for more the pressure. the actors and the writers. Absolutely. And yeah. Yeah, but there was also the thing of like I think half of it was the pressure to keep working at that level, but there was also the like we're king shit. Look at us. We're like we got it. We you know, we got this wired. And that wasn't true. And so it was this weird dichotomy in season three where in some ways we were a little arrogant and in some ways we were a little complacent. And mm. in some ways it was, it was it, we had a weird year. And then we kept coming back and we got better and better. And right. by the time David and Max left at the end of the fourth season and um, I ran the show in seasons five and six with Joni Marchinko and we, we really thundered back. And I still think season five of Will and Grace is the best season of the show. Um, it was just a great, that was the year Harry Connick joined the cast. Oh. It was just great. Yes, and he's so, so lovely. So Such it a was, a, yeah, so it was, a, that, it ended up being this crew. amazing yeah. experience. And then mm -hmm. to get to go from Will and Grace to Desperate Housewives and have another oh, great experience. Huge, yes. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, I've just been uncommonly fortunate to get these tremendous opportunities and to get to become an integral part of the you know, the creation of these super cool shows, all of which are different from one another. Um, it's been incredible. Well, um, you know, I, I just think uh, the hard work and uh, it, hard work leads to talent. And 
and having that uh, continuous um, curiosity. Well, that's what it is. Yeah. And to try to perfect your craft and and get better and yeah and and treating others the way you want to be treated. I'm sorry to get cliche, no, but it's be, true. like trying to remain a good person through it all. And I just think all of that leads to success. Well, I think you're right. I think you know I've. Um, I mean, I've I've been really, as I said, I've been really lucky that like a lot of nice people have taken a chance on me, and I've always tried to reward that trust by working really hard and being eager to learn and never, you know, um, never acting like um, uh, I have it figured out. Mm-hmm. You know, like always being willing to try something different or you know tack in a different direction, um, and trying to give respect if I expect to receive it. You know. And it's worked out pretty well, you know. I I cannot. I mean, I I also never take for granted that I get to do this incredibly groovy thing. It's such a weird job. I mean, I sit around thinking about an imaginary people all day. It's mm. really crazy. It is really, yeah. yeah. That is kind of nuts. Yeah, and um, <laughs> and I and did, fun. Yeah, I did have a moment during Dream On where I realized that in the five years I had been on the show, I had spent more time thinking about Martin Tupper, the lead character on the show, than I had my own father. Ah, which is peculiar. That is, it's, um, it's yeah, it's a peculiar not thing, a common thing. Yes, right? but but anyway, I I've been and I've worked with lovely people. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, just particularly Will and Grace. You know, which was such a guest star machine. I got to work with you know Gene Wilder and Debbie Reynolds and just legends oh, of the yes. Sydney Pollock, oh, just incredible the best. legends of the business. The and best. Um, and I'm sure just uh, you know you you learn so much yes, from working totally, with them, from totally. watching them, and and they you. Yeah, um, I've learned a lot from having you here Thanks. today. Thank a you. tremendous amount. Yeah, I, I, I really admire. Uh, I, I, I admire how you carry yourself. I told you Aww, when we met. I mean, thanks. just that I, I couldn't believe how approachable. You're very. You're here today. You're so cool. Thank you. Um, and so we're going to look for you at Aim High. Correct? That's right. Aim High on AMC. That's right. Probably next fall. And next fall. And um, is there anything that you know? Do you have anything that you that you haven't done that maybe you want to? You would future yeah. aspirations that well, are maybe yeah. different from what you're doing now? The, the, the goal for me is, you know, I had a, I, I have had a magnificently <laughs> delightful writing career. I'm so grateful for all of these experiences. I've been writing professionally now for almost 30 years, which is incredible. Um, and directing for seven of them. But in terms of making those gears mesh, I haven't quite done that yet. Um, I had the opportunity on Desperate Housewives to direct a couple of scripts that I wrote, um, and I did a BBC series called Way to Go where I got to direct a script I wrote. But the thing I haven't quite done yet is direct something that's entirely my own conception. And I don't know whether that Mm. means a short-run television series or a movie or something, but I would really like to see what it's like to use both halves of the brain in that way. Okay. You know, um, I often say that for me, um, directing is the methadone, writing is the heroin. Um, <laughs> because writing is much harder, but ultimately a much better high. Okay. Um, methadone, you know, the directing is what keeps me going between hits of heroin. Um, <laughs> um, so it's I, a funny analogy. So I would really right. like to find a way to do those things in concert, you know, and... I, it's kind of what I set out to do when I moved here was um, the, to use the accursed term, the auteur idea. Um, and I, so I would still like to see if I can make that happen somehow. Um, the couple of times when I've gotten close to that, it's been really, really rewarding. 
um, to sort of have the whole piece in your hand, you know? And so that's what I'd like to try. Um, I have no doubt. Oh, you're very kind. That you will. Or science. Science. <laughs> All this science I don't understand. Uh, I Jeff, appreciate you sharing well, your story too. Well, you know, I, I feel like it's uh, it's getting redundant at this point. I have uh-uh, to live more it's and great. come up with some new stories. I think it's I great go. hearing you talk about what you do and it's inspiring. It <laughs> oh, is. Well, thank you. It is. The fact that you thank like you. chose to, to, you know, to bring yourself out here and embark on a really, yeah, really difficult you know, solo career. I'm just kind of keeping my nose above the water, You're you know, great. and and yeah, and having fun while doing so. I think that's important. Good. Well, your podcast is delightful. You. Well, thank you. It was really a lot of fun I having you on. I listened to Dee Pfeiffer on my walk the oh, other day. Oh, because you work with Dee Dee. She was in my very first Dream On episode. Oh. The first one I ever wrote. She She's really, so isn't she? Very, so very good. talented. Yep. And, um, and I loved her story. It, her story is also very inspiring yeah, because good she for her. did not have to leave the industry and she chose to leave the industry to raise her kids. Yeah, good for and her. And go to school. Yeah. I, 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 I find that inspiring. really commendable. Yeah, so that's what this show is about, really. Just, cool. Um, so thank you for being on. Of course. And uh, Jeff Greenstein, and, and you don't need to promote where people can find you. I oh, mean, well, let's like, you know. I like, will say this because I, I can be elusive. There are two Jeff Greensteins. Okay. There's me and an embezzler. Oh, yes, okay. that's right, because I did find the embezzler when bezzler. I, yes. Yeah, I'm not the embezzler. Um, <laughs> Thank you for differentiating. Yes, I am, blue, I'm, yeah, I'm blue439 on Instagram, and blue439 spelled out, because some okay. jerk took my number. Oh, damn it, I hate I that. I am blue and the numbers 439 on Twitter. And by okay. the way, blue439 is the first line of one of my favorite movies, Blow Up. Blow Up. Yes. So anyway, I'm blue439 on Twitter, so you can follow my adventures there. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Thanks for being on. And I'm Sarah J. Uh, Not to confuse with the porno actress, Sarah J. (laughs) She spells her name without an H. I'm with an H. Thank you all for listening. Drinking during business hours. We'll talk to you next time. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sarah J. Halstead. And if you liked this episode, please give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you really liked it, make sure you tell a friend every single family member.